If you would please open your Bibles to the book of Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. We continue our study in Paul's letter to Titus. And as we do so, there are several things by way of uh, review and introduction that are key for us to understand. First of all, the occasion and the purpose of this letter. This is one of three pastoral letters, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And much of what we find in Titus is also found in First Timothy, so much so that people would almost see it as sort of a miniature First Timothy. Um, but this is not the case. If you look at verse number five in chapter one, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So it would seem that Paul had traveled through Crete, had preached there, some had become believers, um, and perhaps little congregations throughout the island in every town had come together. But there were no leaders, there were no elders or overseers. And Paul writes Titus um, to remind him, you know, this is why I left you here. You need to continue and finish the work that I left unfinished and appoint leaders, elders and overseers. This is very different from what we find in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy is written to Timothy, who is in Ephesus, where Paul spent more time than any other place during his, uh, uh, his missionary journeys. Um, there, they already had elders. The elders were the problem. So in both letters, we have a list of qualifications. This is what you're supposed to look for in an elder. For Titus, it was so that he could choose the right men. Uh, for Timothy, it was so that we, he could correct these men who were elders, who in fact had become false teachers. The second thing we need to see are the qualifications of the elders or overseers. Um, the word for elders, by the way, in Greek is presbyteroi, Presbyterian, and for overseers is episkopoi, Episcopalian. I think they're used interchangeably. And they're not simply titles. Uh, we'll see that more in a bit. Um, but they are descriptive in nature. Elders indicates maturity. And overseers is someone who has managerial ability, someone who is the head of a household and knows how to run things. We can put them all these qualifications into one category with several subsets. What is the one category? If you look at the list of qualifications, they all deal with outward, um, observable behavior. We can, in fact, we cannot look into someone's heart. Um, and interestingly enough, there's not even much about theology at this point. It is how do they behave? Um, the subsets are in his private life with his family. That's in verse number six. Um, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. That's in his private life. But in his public life, as other people see him, we have two lists or two things here. Negatives, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. But also positives. He must be hospitable, loves what is good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. In both lists, both the family list, the private list, if you wish, and the public, we find the quality or the qualification of blameless. 
An elder must be blameless. In his private life with his family, he must be so. And an overseer is to be blameless in his public life. So I've mentioned the last two Sundays, we should be struck by what Paul does not include in the qualifications for elders. He does, says nothing about their personalities, that they need to be extroverts, not introverts, that they need to be charismatic, that they need to have uh, sort of a dynamic personality and speaking ability. Nothing about their physical appearance, and certainly not in the modern American sense of celebrity, someone who's well-known for being well-known. Um, no, when you choose an elder, you're to choose someone that reflects the qualities that show a grace-filled life. It's almost inexcusable that I have not mentioned this the last two weeks. And forgive me for this, but God has graced us with wonderful elders. And it's a joy to go through this and to see that our elders, in fact, match these qualifications. And we are grateful to God for their grace-filled lives. Having talked about elders, the third thing we see is there's a contrast with the false teachers. And I, this is how I see it. Paul sort of goes through and preaches and you have believers and they have all these little house churches. The leadership has not been appointed by Titus or by Paul. But you have the head of the household would normally be you know, someone who would be a, a leader but they are teaching false things. And their qualities do not lend them to being elders. They are rebellious. The same word as disobedient, verse number six. They are all talk, and thus they tend to deceive. They teach for the sake of dishonest gain. And both their minds and consciences are corrupt. From what Paul writes, we can put together that these men, in fact, are from Crete, but they have become Jewish proselytes. They have converted to Judaism. Um, and they are doing a lot of damage on entire households. They are ruining whole households. What Paul writes in verse number 16 of chapter 1 is quite condemning. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. As harsh as these words are, I would argue that these men, in fact, are believers. Um, they simply do not have a right understanding of the gospel. Because of the influence of Judaism and the, the proselyters, they have sort of gone off track. But it isn't simply seen in what they teach, but in how they behave. So that even if these men somehow could get their, correct, their theology corrected, their behavior still disqualifies them from being in positions of leadership. The fourth key, and perhaps the biggest key to what we're going to look at today, is what Paul writes in verse number one of chapter two. Uh, you know, what does he mean by this? And by the way, just a, just a reminder that the New Testament was not written in chapters. It was not, in fact, divided into chapters until 1205 by Stephen Langdon, a professor in Paris. And then the verse divisions came um, 350 years later. However, and so oftentimes we see a, a thought that goes from one chapter to the next, but it's divided by the chapter division. That's not the case here. Chapter 2, verse 1, is a good place for a division. He's talked about elders, false teachers, 
Now Paul instructs Timothy or Titus, I'm sorry, as to what he should do. And if you look at verse number one, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Um, the NIV really drops the ball here um, because there is an adversative here. In some translations, for you, uh, the ESV has, but as for you. So he's talked about the false teachers, but now Titus, this is what you're supposed to do. Unlike them, this is what you're supposed to do. Um, we find this, by the way, in First Timothy uh, 6 as well. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, O man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So on the one hand, you have the false teachers, and on the other, you have Titus. And there's a contrast. But what is the point? I mean, what is it that Paul is trying to say here? When you hear the word doctrine, what comes to mind? I think for most, I suspect that it is theological propositions. You know, the doctrine of scripture, the doctrine of the virgin birth, uh, the doctrine of the deity of Christ and things like that. So it, I think for most people it is, this is what I believe about that. And we have what we call articles of faith. If you look it up in the dictionary, if you look doctrine up in the dictionary, several things are mentioned. A particular principle, position, or policy. A body or system of teachings related to a peculiar or particular subject and something that is taught. So on some level, I think when we think of doctrine or theology, we think of something as quite abstract. Uh, it's, it's somewhat theoretical, if you wish. But this does not appear to be the way that Paul views doctrine. Listen to what he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Did you hear what Paul did there? In contrast to sound doctrine or theology, he gives us a list. What is contrary to sound doctrine? Lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, those who kill their fathers or mothers, murderers, adulterers and perverts, slave traders, liars and perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. I think we would agree with Paul that these qualities are certainly undesirable. Uh, murderers, adulterers, um, slave traders, perjurers, um, but we would tend to see them as almost criminal activities. Um, we might see them in that category or political. Uh, I don't know that we would see them as doctrinal or contrary to doctrine. I would suggest that what Paul intends by sound doctrine has as much to do with how people behave, how they live, as it does with belief. And I think it's borne out with what we'll see in verses 2 through 10 today. As he tells Titus to teach these people in accordance with sound doctrine. What follows are five categories of 
human society, but also in the church, and what Titus is to teach each of these groups. The first group are the older men, verse number two. Look at, if you would, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Hippocrates saw a man's life as having seven periods. The word that Paul uses here was the period that Hippocrates used to refer to the sixth period, from age 50 to 56. Philo, who came centuries later and is much closer to Paul, used it to refer to men over 60. So we're dealing with the older men in these congregations. Um, You will notice that what Titus is to teach these older men is very similar to the qualifications for elders, which would make sense because elders are, in fact, older men. They are to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in endurance. What does Paul mean by these qualities? Temperate is usually seen with regard to alcohol. I think that Paul's using it in a more general sense, that they are to be free from excess, um, that they are to be free from passion or rashness. And it's tied in that they are to be worthy of respect and self-control. By the way, in pagan writings during Paul's time, these were two qualities usually put together, and these were the high ideals. This is what a good man, a blameless man, was to live. Um, This should mark his life. And so we shouldn't be surprised that Paul includes this for Christian men who are older. And then there are three things, sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in endurance. I would say that endurance is another way of Paul expressing hope. These are three virtues that we see throughout Paul's writings. We usually think of 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, But Paul mentions these throughout his writings. And oftentimes he uses endurance instead of hope, I think, to get across the point that we are to continue, we are to persevere. 1 Timothy 6.11 But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And 2 Timothy 3 You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance. 1 Thessalonians 1 We continually remember before our our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there we see, in fact, that endurance, in fact, is what is inspired by one's hope. So Titus is to instruct older men to have faith toward God, to love, have love toward everyone, and to have endurance to the end. They are to continue. And in this, they are going to be examples to the rest of the believers. The second group of people are the older women. Verse number three. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Again, Philo saw this this term as referring to women over the age of 60. They are to be reverent in the way that they live. This is a puzzling thing because this is the only place in the New Testament where the word reverent is found. So we can't really compare it with other places in Scripture. 
we do know from the literature of the day that it was used to describe the actions of a priestess in a temple. And I think what Paul is intending here is that the demeanor of older women who are believers is to be seen as that which is fitting for temple service. They are reverent in their demeanor and how they act. They are not to be slanderers. They are not to be malicious gossips that seeks to destroy or damage others. They are not to be addicted to much wine. This might seem strange, but this is in line with the culture of the day. In Paul's time, uh, older men and older women were admired for their ability to hold their liquor. And so it was sort of assumed that older men and older women would drink rather heavily. And Paul says, no, you're not to be addicted to much wine. Just a side note, it goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Paul does not tell Titus or Timothy, for that matter, to preach or to teach total abstinence. Paul doesn't say believers are not to drink wine. Not at all. This is contrary to scripture. These women, however, are to teach what is good. And who and what they are to teach comes up in the next category in verses 4 and 5. The younger women. Look, if you would, at verse 4. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. So here we find that Titus's instruction for younger women is indirect. It goes through the older women who are then to teach the younger women. You'll notice at least two things about what is mentioned here. It's, it's quite specific, I think, in contrast to the other list that we find. Um, and such behavior is to be followed so that people will not malign the gospel. That is, your behavior reflects on the good news. And if you don't behave as you should, then in fact it brings disrepute on the gospel. So what are the qualities? They are to love their husbands and children. They are to be self-controlled. They are to be pure. They are to be busy at home. They are to be kind. They are to be subject to their husbands. This list could be a sermon or even a series uh, on its own with no small amount of controversy. I, I just want to point out several things. It seems, and it has for many years to me, seems strange that a younger woman has to be taught how to love her husband and her children. But then I realize that oftentimes when I think of love in this regard, I'm thinking in terms of romantic love, of these feelings that one will have. In reality, love requires choice and effort, day-by-day effort. As a husband, I confess that husbands are not always easy to love. Um, A conscious effort must be made in the light of sound doctrine. And children, as lovely and delightful as they can be, are not always easy to love as well. Paul recognizes this, and he calls on the older women to teach the younger women in these matters. You see, older women have lived longer. They have, I think a view of the big picture. Whereas a younger person can only see what's happening at this moment. A very short range in their thinking. And an older woman, someone who's been married for 20, 30, 40 years, can say to a younger woman who's been married for a year or less, um, maybe a couple years, 
yeah, you go through this. Okay, this is, this is part of married life as you adjust to each other. So that the older woman who has a better perspective can, in fact, teach the younger women, those who are married, um, how they are to love their husbands and their children. They are to be faithful in their marriages. They are to be self-controlled. That was mentioned for the older men. It will be mentioned again for the younger men. But what is, I think, really important here is that the younger women are not to present an opportunity for people to, in fact, um, slander the gospel, to say bad things about the good news of Jesus Christ. The fourth group are the young men. Interesting enough, not younger men, but young men. Similarly, verse 6 Encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Finally, as one commentator put it, Paul turns to the young men. And here we find no list of virtues. In fact, there's only one thing that is mentioned here. You're to encourage young men to be self-controlled. We heard this for the older men. We heard it for the younger women. But here it is the one thing that Paul mentions that Titus is to teach the young men. We have a call for clear-headed thinking, for sensible living in the face of much of what is false. Verse number six technically is the only one for the young men. But in verses seven and eight, Paul turns to Titus and says, Okay, Titus, you need to be an example for these young men to follow. This is something we find throughout Scripture. um, And frankly, it's not something I hear much of or that I have in my time of being a pastor. This call to live your life the way I live my life. Perhaps we're afraid that pride might creep in, or I think even more, people are more afraid of legalism. But the fact is, Paul over and over again tells people, here's an example, follow the example. 1 Timothy 4.12, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. 1 Thessalonians 1, 7. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. He's speaking to the Thessalonians. And 2 Thessalonians, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We are not idle when we were with, we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, laboring and toiling so that we might not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right for such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. Philippians 3.17 Join with others in following my example, brothers. Titus is to teach by example. I think it's far more difficult to teach by example that is to simply get up and, and spout off and, and teach people uh, verbally, you know, orally, to say to people, this is what is true. But it is important, 
And we see the contrast between what Titus is supposed to do and what the false teachers are doing. What the false teachers are doing by their bad behavior is in fact deceiving others. So how is Titus to set an example? By doing what is good. That seems pretty generic, doesn't it? Verse number seven, in everything set them an example by doing what is good. Well, what what are the alternatives? Doing what is wrong? Well, obviously not. That's not acceptable. So Titus is to set an example by doing what is good. And then in his teaching, uh, in your teaching show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. And the result is that those who oppose you will be ashamed because they thought they could accuse you of doing something bad, and in fact they cannot. Again, the focus is on behavior. Um, just step back a minute. I think one of the things that we are afraid of, many of us from our, our experiences, is that legalism will creep in. That we will then begin to make rules about how people are supposed to live. I think these rules are fairly sufficient. Um, that in fact, this is how we're supposed to live. We don't need to get into the specifics because culturally, age-wise, there are many things. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's not say, oh, legalism is terrible, so let's not put anything on anybody. No, there's a certain way we're supposed to live. And we see the difference between false teachers and Titus and Paul and the believers is seen in their behavior. It's seen in their behavior. The fifth group of people found in verses 9 and 10. These are slaves. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. These verses come somewhat as a surprise um, for a couple reasons. First of all, up to this point, it's all been about age and gender. Older men, older women, younger women, young men. Uh, And suddenly we have this sort of socioeconomic category, that of slaves. And it's surprising and and frankly a bit disturbing because it seems that Paul condones slavery, something that we find abhorrent. And if you'll allow me, I've talked about this before, but I want to do it again. Let me digress a bit and talk about slavery because we find it throughout the New Testament. And I think oftentimes we have a, a bad understanding. Slavery is the total control of one person by another for the purpose of economic exploitation. Okay, let's be clear. That's what slavery is. It's best, I think, for us to think of slavery on three levels. First of all, slavery in our own consciousness because of our history. Secondly, slavery in Paul's time. And then slavery as it exists today. The new slavery as it is called. Projection is really a problem whenever you're reading a text from the past. And so based on our experiences, we might project back to Paul a view of slavery that was not accurate. For us, slavery involved violence, the kidnapping and taking of people from their homes and bringing them across the ocean to a strange place. Violence used to keep them under control. Violence in selling their children as slaves to others. So for us, violence is very much tied into our notion of slavery. Uh, 
And so when Paul talks to slaves and says, listen, you need to be good slaves, it's like, that really is hard for us. And also for us, slavery is tied to race, which was not the case in Paul's time. So when we think of slavery, we think of Africans who have been brought here by violence and bought and sold. Um, And so when we read Paul, that's what we project back, and that's not the way that it was. Um, Slavery in Paul's day was quite different than what we might expect. Um, Let me just say, there was some violence, but violence was not the norm because a slave was seen as an economic uh, investment. We do know that horrendous things were done to slaves, um, but slavery was pervasive in Paul's day throughout the Roman Empire, unlike, let's say, in this country where it was in the south but not in the north. You found it throughout the Roman Empire. It's been estimated that there were 60 million slaves at one time. Um, it doesn't mean much to us except it's just a large number that a significant portion of the population were slaves. It has been estimated that 85 to 90 percent of the population were slaves. So you're talking about the majority of the population. And just a side note, if if we don't want Paul to address the slaves, then we're, he's, in fact, not addressing the vast majority of the population. Slaves were the workforce of the empire. They did manual labor. They did domestic help. They were educators. Most of the tutors, you know, family would go down to the market and buy themselves a tutor to train their sons. They did administrative work. They were the CPAs, if you wish, of that day. And they were the doctors. Doctors were slaves. You go down, you, if you know, somebody's sick, go down to the market and buy a doctor and bring him home to take care of your family. You could buy a slave, you could inherit a slave, um, you could get one as payment for debt. If somebody owes money and they can't pay you back, they're like, here, take my slave. Uh, some were captives of war. And so we find that from the early wars and then their children, you know, grandchildren and so on, they remain as slaves. Um, the reality is that many people sold themselves into slavery. They weren't sold by others. They sold themselves into slavery. And why would you do that? Um, well, for one thing, it provided security. You have a place to live. You have three meals a day. Uh, you have protection. You're part of a household. You're not a street person. You're not on your own. You, in fact, belong to someone else. It was the Roman custom by law that when someone reached the age of 30, if they wished, they could be set free. Manumission. It's a word I kept hearing when I was in graduate school. I had to look it up. Uh, That the age of 30, slaves were generally set free unless they wanted to remain in the household of their masters. The slavery in Paul's day was, I think, quite different than what we imagine slavery to be because slaves were seen truly as an investment, a financial investment. But still, it is the total control of one person by another for the purpose of economic exploitation. What about slavery today? Many people imagine that slavery does not exist in the world today. 
And this is simply not the case. One of the things that I have all my students read is by Kevin Bales. Um, It's a book entitled Disposable People, New Slavery in the Global Economy. And he points out that the new slavery today is quite different than slavery used to be. It used to be that you had legal ownership. You had a piece of paper or some, some document to say this person belongs to me. In the new slavery, you, you don't have anything like that at all. There you wanted to assert your ownership. Here you don't, you don't want to do that. This person belongs to me, but you don't want to make a big thing about it. Slaves were more expensive in the past. They're far, far cheaper today. There was a shortage of slaves in Paul's day. And in today's world, there is a glut of slaves. It's a short-term relationship. Slaves now are seen as disposable. Like it or not, slavery is in fact a part of the economic reality in which we live. And it's a part of the system that we participate in. Labor is viewed as a commodity, and so people come to be viewed as a commodity. It might not fit snugly into our definition of the total control of one person by another, but there is still that aspect of economic exploitation. But again, slavery as we viewed it in the Old South, it's not what existed in Paul's day. And slavery as it exists today is not what existed in Paul's day. He is writing to Titus to teach Christians who are slaves that they are to subject themselves, they are to submit themselves to their masters and everything. They are to try to please them. They are not to talk back to them. They are not to steal from them. They are to show that they can be fully trusted. I think for some of us, we have a hard time getting to that part because we're still hung up on the slavery thing. How is it that Paul can instruct Titus to teach slaves? Well, he says that if they do this, they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. It's the flip side of verse number five, that no one will malign the gospel of God, the word of God. If we have slaves who are Christians, and if they behave as Paul describes, then people will find that there is something about this good news of Jesus. There's something about the gospel that is attractive and worth investigating. I only wish that was the case today. That people would find in our behavior things that are attractive and make the gospel worth investigating. to tie this all together. Consider what we see in this passage. First of all, that doctrine has as much to do with behavior as it does with belief. It has as much to do with behavior as it does with belief. When we hear the word doctrine, we think belief. What a person believes. Um, Paul instead said, yeah, it's what they believe and it is seen in their behavior. Bad behavior 
which is sinful, is as much bad doctrine as anything else. See, we would say, oh, this person's got good theology, they just, they just are a jerk. You know, they just don't act right. And I think Paul would say, no, no, no. Good behavior is good doctrine. And bad behavior is bad doctrine. And again, I, I take you back to First Timothy 1, where Paul gives a list of all these terrible, we would even say criminal elements in society. And Paul doesn't see them as criminals. He doesn't put them in a political category. He, in fact, puts them in a theological category. They are contrary to sound doctrine. Secondly, I would remind you of the tree of virtues, faith, love, and endurance, hope. These are central. It's not simply that something's kind of nice at the end of 1 Corinthians 13. You know, read at a wedding and then at the end, you know, people, yes, the greatest of these is love. Um, these are virtues. And Paul, I think, would insist that the people of God, their lives are to be marked by these virtues. And then lastly, and perhaps, again, I told you, I'm really struck that you have to teach younger women how to love their husbands. Love is a conscious choice. It's an ongoing moment-by-moment choice. We have a book upstairs in which the author dedicates it the book to his wife and he says to Debbie who daily chooses to make a life with me every day it's a conscious choice Um, we think of love more in romantic terms more in emotional terms it is a conscious choice to do what is right to live with someone to be faithful to be pure to have integrity It's a conscious choice. And if you wonder about that, think about God's love for you. It wasn't this romantic, emotional. It was a conscious choice. And while we were still sinners, when we hated God, he loved us. And we in turn are to love one another. Let's pray together. Our Father, sometimes it seems that we understand things more by using a dictionary or by looking at the surrounding culture or history rather than looking to your word. When we think of doctrine, we think of propositions, principles, ideas, abstractions. We don't think of behavior. And when we think of love, we think more of a romantic emotional impulse. I thank you for that which I do not understand. That is that you loved us. You have loved us with an everlasting love. You consciously chose to love us. And in spite of our many failings, you continue to love us. May we love one another as we should. And as your people, may we be marked by faith by love and by endurance. I suspect that we would rather 
have doctrine tied to belief than behavior. Because I can say I believe certain things and then just live any way I want. But to live a life guided by the Spirit and saying no to the things that we want to say yes to, that's a very difficult and a very different matter. By your Spirit, help us to think these things through. And again, not to be hearers only, but doers of the Word. Because doctrine is about behavior as it is belief. Father, earlier in our time for prayer, we mentioned the mothers of various ones. For Dan's mom, still recovering. For Tom's mom, Anne's mom. Rosa's mom, who's turned 100. For Gia's mom. Give us patience and grace. Above all, faith to trust you. We thank you for these women and they raised their children were an example to them. May they be honored here in the latter part of their lives. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.